right behind me on the pew. Hi, Rach.
And so we're having communion today and no evening service tonight. Are we still going to Tucker? Good morning. Good morning. Let's go over a few announcements. I officially announced today that it is now the season for sweater vests. You can see our weather is going a little bit, what would you say, sideways today for us. But uh, it's still the day that the Lord has made. It is good for us and to his glory. Uh, First three is pretty much same old, same old. Days of praise and acts of facts. We've got plenty of them out there in the foyer. Please avail yourself to them. Uh, you see, if you look closely, there is work continuing on the portico. And uh, 
we are really hoping to get this thing buttoned up before the snow really starts coming down. Uh, item number five for our communion service today, uh, we're postponing that till December 1st because, because of everything going on and that. So uh, we felt that it's probably just better to let it go this month. So, uh, and there will be no evening service tonight, correct? <coughs> correct. No evening service tonight. So, please uh, take a look at all the prayer requests that we have on the left side, and uh, don't don't uh, blow that off, so to speak. But uh, take them home with you and, and commit them to to prayer. The Claytons are en route back from Pennsylvania with their CNC router. And I would ask that as we uh, do our prayers this morning that we keep them in fervent prayer because uh, the weather isn't getting any better out there and they're carrying three and a half tons of machinery on a trailer. I believe it's uh, Doug, Laura, and Luke. So, and there's a lot of hills that they have to navigate through. So we'll pray for a safe and uneventful return for them. Okay, avail yourself to uh, Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 20 uh, for our scripture meditation this morning. It's on page 1875 in your pew Bible. begin our service with opening prayer. Please stand. Brother George, would you lead us, please? Father, indeed, this morning as we come into your presence, we thank you for this great blessing. 
blessing, Lord, of being able to gather with your people and to be able to speak in your name as to what you have done for us as the loved of God. So we pray, Father, this morning that you would be with those who are ill, uh, who can't be here, and be with those who have come, even though they don't necessarily feel well. Uh, yet, God, it's still for our benefit that we are under your hearing, the hearing of your word. We pray for Pastor as he speaks today that you would cause him to give thought to what our direction is and what our purpose is and allow us, Lord, to be able to share uh, that same vision and that same hope. People die when there is no vision and we pray that indeed that would not be the case with this little church that you would encourage us and that you would strengthen us and that you would allow us, Lord, uh, to have a reason for why we rejoice in Christ as our Savior. Bless our time now as we sing and as we pray and as we worship you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Remain standing. Good morning. Jared is up north this weekend at a last minute trip. Um, so Hannah is our piano player today. We turn to number 355 in the red hymnal, 355. And she'll be plunking the melody for us. So sing loud. They're all familiar. You know them all.
seated. My favorite hymn this morning, if it could be something that we all know really well. And easy to play. <laughs> all right, Naomi, your hand was up. Jess, were you going to put your hand up? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I thought I saw a move. Okay, go ahead, Naomi. Jesus. Everyone knows it. All right, it's in the brown, and it is numbered. We were singing that in the car this morning. Five seven nine in the brown. Five seven nine. Five seven nine in the brown. And we could get through first one and two memorized, but number three, uh, I, I forget a lot. Number three. That's a good verse. Five seconds. Yeah. Five seconds. Five seconds. Before we begin our uh, scripture reading, uh, Terry, do you have an update on on the Lewis's on how Della's doing? Yes, uh, Della said she's doing much better. She had a procedure to um, some of the nerves. They, I guess they, I don't know how they, picked, you know, cut them or cauterized. I don't know how they did it, but but she said that um, she's doing much better. Well, there's an answer to prayer right there. Praise God for that. Uh, Dale, how about uh, Jerry and, and uh, Jerry?
Charles Rafka, what's going on with them? Charles seems to be doing pretty good, but Jerry got COVID. She went to the doctor. answered prayer in all of this. We haven't seen it yet, but uh, I imagine we should just continue on in our prayer for them that, that they see it through. So, Our scripture reading for today is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 24, and it'll be verses 1 through 28. That'll be page 33 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. Genesis 24, verses 1 through 28. <clears throat> Abraham was now old and well advanced in years, and Jehovah had blessed him in every way. He said to the chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by Jehovah the God of heaven and the God of earth that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. Jehovah, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram, Naharam, and made his way to the town of Nahor. And he had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, O oh, Jehovah God, my master, Abraham gave me success today and show kindness to me my master Abraham see I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water may it be that when I say to a girl please let down your jar that I may have a drink and she says drink 
and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not Jehovah had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. Then he asked, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of that of Micah, bore to Nahor. And she added, We have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. Then the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord God Jehovah, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, Jehovah has led me on a journey to the house of my master's relatives. The girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Father in heaven, we pray that your holy inspired word would be absorbed and brought forth in the today's sermon that you give to the pastor. Let it reach our hearts and pierce our souls to your glory and to our good. In the name of Christ, amen. Can you take your red hymnal again and turn to number 
That's good. Thank you. Our text of scripture is Genesis 24. Last Lord's Day, we entered into the sadness of Abraham as he grieved over the death of Sarah. She had lived a long time when comparing her life to those after the flood. But her earthly departure, like all of us, was ordained by God and came at just the appointed time. You know, we hear people say, oh, so-and-so died before their time. That is never true. Never true. We die right on time. How do we know that? Because the scripture says the days God has for us were written in his book before any of them ever came to be. You mean God is that meticulous? He has all of us lined up He's got days set down for us, including a birthday and a dying day? Yes. God is the creator and sustainer of life. And nothing surprises him. Not ever. We've learned that Abraham honored his deceased wife in two ways. Number one, he mourned her passing. And he stayed by her side, weeping over her. Number two, he worked hard to provide a proper burial for her. Why? Well, he didn't own even so much as a burial plot in the land of Canaan. But he bargained with a Hittite named Ephron for his field, which contained also a cave. So there, Sarah was buried. Later, he himself was buried there. Still later... Isaac and Rebecca were buried there. In other words, a burial plot was established in the land of Canaan. We took from this three lessons to heart. Number one, death comes to us all and the experience is one of shared sorrow with the people of the world. Scripture says, in Adam all die. No exceptions, Solomon says, the same destiny overtakes us all. Wow. Secondly, we learn though buried in the land of Canaan, Sarah's home going was to God's dwelling, to the city, the scripture says, whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews 11 verse 10. She died believing. She died anticipating what God had promised. Therefore, God was not ashamed to be called by those people's names. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of... God identified with those people. And Jesus gave us this nugget in Luke 20, verse 38. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So put it together, and what do we mean? It shows 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive with God to this day. Thirdly, we learn that mourning for our deceased loved ones is tempered with joy and hope if they knew the Lord as Savior. That's what we pray for, for all of our kids. We pray for that for our country, for our relatives, for our extended families, for our neighbors. We want them to hear the gospel and believe, come to know the Savior. Now today's text, Genesis 24, is so long that I'm going to break it up into two uh, sections for study. And today we want to talk about a bride for Isaac. As we do so, let's ask for God's enablement. Thank you, Lord, for these historical records. It gives a real understanding, helpful understanding, of how you function among the affairs of men. Nothing happens by chance or happenstance. Everything is planned out by you. You've got it written in your book. What you have specifically for us is not always written out for us. Nevertheless, we see the hand of God in our lives. And we're able to say with thanksgiving that it's great to know the Lord as Savior. It's great to have God ruling over our lives. I pray you'll help us this, this day, this morning, to see some of these truths and to bless you for it. Thank you for each one that made the effort to come today. The weather's not the best, but we do thank you. In Christ's name, amen. We're looking at the subject, a bride for Isaac. Isaac is Abraham's son. And he gives a charge to his house steward. He's very old at this time. He was 100 years old at the birth of Isaac, but Isaac is now a grown man. He's 40 years old, chapter 25, verse 20, and he's looking for a wife. Who waits till they're 40 years old to find a wife? Well, you have to know the culture of the day. Yet even though Isaac is capable of making his own decisions, the culture was such and his devotion to his father was such that only a rebellious son, later Esau was one of those, would think of going wife hunting without his father's input. And it had nothing to do with Isaac being incapable of making good choices, but everything to do with finding a godly companion that shared his same spiritual values. Guess what? No woman among the pagans of Canaan could fill that bill. None. So, verse 2 says, Abraham said to his chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, that would be Eliezer, chapter 15, verse 2, put your hand under my thigh, I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Genesis 24, verses 2 through 4. I want you to think about this. Abraham cannot travel. He's old. But Eliezer can travel. 
So Abraham entrusts this important mission to his faithful steward. And thinking of the gospel entrusted to we who are ministers, Paul says, let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Paul says in another text, 1 Corinthians 4, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, we must be faithful. The word steward is a compound word in Greek. Oikonomos. That doesn't mean much to you, I know. Oikos is the word for household or house. Nomos means law. So you put them together. Hence the lawyer or the governor over the household. The law organizer over the house. Our text, verse 2, calls him the chief servant. The chief servant. Probably the eldest servant. You see, Eliezer has been with Abraham a long, long time, and he has earned the respect and trust of his master to perform whatever Abraham desired. Okay, what did Abraham desire? Verse 4, go to my own country, go to my own relatives, get a wife for my son Isaac. Well, what is it about the women of Canaan that would influence Abraham to seek for a wife for Isaac back home among the relatives. Simply put, the Canaanites were pagans. Okay, we ask the question, what is a pagan? Paul, speaking of the past religious affiliations of the Corinthians writes this, you know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. And of course, that means they worshiped them. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 2. And Peter tells us how pagans live. How do they live? For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. What's that? living in debauchery, that's unbridled abandon, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. 1 Peter 4, verse 3. Now, none of this is going to sit well with Abraham as he anticipates his future daughter-in-law. Not looking for that. No, he wants a God-fearing woman who will share the same values, the same religious convictions of his family. So where does Eliezer have to go to find such a woman? Well, not in pagan Canaan land. He has to go back to Abraham's family. I want you to observe here as well that even though this is an arranged marriage, 
you know what arranged marriages are. So, well, we don't have arranged marriage. Oh, yes, we do. Not in our country, per se, but in Arab countries, that still goes on. That's how you get married. They arrange it, and they arrange it when you're a little toddler sometimes. This family works with this family. They take their little boy, this little girl, and they arrange the marriage. So when they're old enough to marry, that's how it goes about. Though this is an arranged marriage, I want you to notice that at this stage in the courtship, the bride still has some say in the matter. How do we know that? Look at verse 5. Eliezer says, What if, here's one of these what if questions, what if the woman is unwilling to come with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country that you came from? So here we learn, arranged marriage or no, this is not compulsory. Rebecca may choose to marry Isaac or not. She can leave her father's house or she can stay right where she is. In fact, this option will be given to her, verse 57, when her brother and her mother want to delay the trip. Say, so how come there's this exception? Because this is a believing family. That's how. They're not following just what the pagans do as far as the conventions of their culture. They're going to say, daughter, what do you think? They're going to give her some options. These questions, these suggestions by Eliezer to Abraham in this is his way of determining precisely what the wishes of Abraham are. What if this unknown bride for Isaac refuses to come? What if? You've heard the saying, if Mohammed won't go to the mountain, then the mountain must come to Mohammed. Should I take Isaac there? She won't come here. Oh boy. It's his attempt to work out an agreement one way or the other. But Abraham was having none of that. Uh -uh. Look at verse 6. Make sure you do not take my son back there. Why not? What's the problem? I mean, maybe Isaac could be more persuasive than a steward. No, that's not the issue. Verse 7, The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household in my native land, who spoke to me and promised an oath to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son there. In the context, verse 8 and following, says this, If she's unwilling to come back, then you are released from your oath, but under no circumstances are you to take Isaac back to Ur. Who? 
You see what has happening here. Abraham is still functioning by faith. Even if he can't be there. Even if he's too old to travel the distance himself. Even if Isaac is not there. Because he's not the one that's being sent. Abraham is convinced that God's superintendence of the matter will prevail. But okay, Eliezer, I mean, if the woman refuses marriage to Isaac, then you are released from your oath. With this assurance from Abraham, we read verse 9. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Now about what, what, what is this ritual all about? Putting your hand under a person's thigh and swearing an oath. Later Jacob would ask Joseph to do the same thing. And swear that he would not bury Jacob in Egypt. Chapter 47 verse 29. So what about this? Well there are two views. Both have come from Jewish rabbinical sources. Let me give you what they are. Number one, the thigh represented the circumcised maleness of the person to whom you were making your pledge. The thought being, you need to realize that you are making a promise to a brother in the faith. So don't lie. Don't lie. Be sure you make an honest pledge. Secondly, the second view is that the thigh or loins represent the procreative powers of the one to whom you are pledging fidelity. So your word will affect all future generations. You sure you want to lie? And put all your future generations in jeopardy of the judgment of God? Boy, these are weighty matters when you think about it. Some time ago, I had to renew my carry permit for my pistol. And to do so, I had to appear before the county clerk, raise my right hand, and swear to uphold the laws of the United States and the state of Michigan concerning regulations involving the Second Amendment. There had to be a visible or verbal affirmation of what was going to be said. And that's what's going on here. Plan to do as the old Bible had required. In themselves, you would impinge your integrity if you lied. We see no doubt expressed or implied in Abraham's requirement that Eliezer pledge on oath that he would find a bride for Isaac from Abraham's relatives? Was 
fulfilled in her willingness to come or it would be fulfilled if she refused to come. That's the way it was set up. The thought is something like this. Well, Eliezer, just let the chips fall where they may. But I want your word on this as my house steward that under no circumstances will you ever take Isaac back to Ur. That's paramount. The woman can make up her mind. Yes, I'll go and marry Isaac. No, I don't want to have anything to do with him. I'm staying right here with my family. That's up to her. But as far as you're concerned, you're not to take my son back to the land of Ur. Well, that introduces what I'm calling the, the matrimony caravan. Once Eliezer settled the matter of how tenacious he has to be in bringing back a bride for Isaac from her, we read in verse 10 and following, then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharim, Aram uh, the, the name Aram means the land of two rivers. We know it in our history lessons as Mesopotamia. With the Tigris River on one side and the Euphrates on the other side. And Mesopotamia in the middle. And he made his way to the town of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was Towards evening, the time when the women went out to draw water, because it's cooler in the day. And then he prayed. Yeah, the servant knows God. And he prays. We have his prayer. Moses records it for us. O Lord God of my master, Abraham. Give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I'm standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be, now this is his prayer, may it be that when I say to a girl, please, let down your water jar that I may take a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one that you have chosen for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Genesis 24, verses 10 through 14. Nahor was Abraham's brother. Genesis 22 fills in some of the history for us. It says, sometime after Abraham was told Milcah is also a mother. She has borne sons to your brother Nahor. Eight all total, down to the youngest, Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. Milcah bore these eight sons to Abraham's brother Nahor. Genesis 22, verse 20 and following. So Eliezer has made it all the way back to the town of Nahor, verse 10, there outside the town where the well was located, he had all the camels kneel down. 
It was at twilight, verse 11, so it was the cooler part of the day, when the women would come out to draw water. And there he offered this prayer that had four requests. Here they are. Number one, give me success today, Lord. Number two, show kindness to my master Abraham. Number three, see, I'm standing beside this spring. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Number four, let her be the one that you have chosen for your servant, Isaac. Boy, you, you talk about laying it out before God. Do we pray like that? Do we pray, Lord, do this, do this, do this, do this? Not in an arrogant way as though we're dictating to God, but in a petitionary way. Please, Lord, do this. Now look at verse 15 and 16. Before he had finished praying. Oh, I like that. Before he had finished praying, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. Notice how specific Eliezer's prayer is. No generalities here. Give me success today. Show kindness to my master Abraham. Number three, may, be, may it be that the one I ask for a drink will also offer to water my camels. And number four, may she be the one you, Lord, have chosen for Isaac. Amen. That checks all the boxes. So here came Rebecca walking by with her water jar. And once she filled it, Eliezer put feet to his prayers. By approaching Rebecca and delivering the coup de gras, the decisive move, which was, may I have a drink of water from your jar? This is it. It's what we call the definitive moment. Not, will you give Eliezer a drink of water? No oriental person would deny water to a thirsty traveler. That would be unheard of. Grossly wicked, grossly unneighborly. So that was not the test as to whether or not Rebecca was God's choice of a sweetheart for Isaac. The test was more rigorous than that. I call it the camel test. Ten beasts of burden who not only have the ability to travel great distances without water, but when they do drink... 
They can consume a lot of water. Okay. What's a lot of water for a camel? Well, I went to National Geographic and looked up an article on camels and read it for this sermon. Here's what I found out. This is from them. I'm quoting National Geographic. Camels are powerful animals. They're able to easily carry humans and their wares. They stand about seven feet tall at the hump. And they weigh anywhere from 1,600 to 1,800 pounds. That's almost a ton. Over a four-day period, a camel can haul anywhere from 375 to 600 pounds at rates of 29 miles a day and 2.5 miles an hour. They have been clocked at over 40 miles an hour when they run. Well adapted to harsh climates, camels are famous for their ability to travel as many as 100 miles without water. They retain their body moisture efficiently, but they do not function without water. If they do function without water, in fact, a thirsty camel can drink as many as 30 gallons of water in about 13 minutes. 30 gallons of water. 30 gallons. Okay, I did a little geography. From Ebron to Ur is about 700 miles. So at 29 miles per day, it would take about 25 days one way, nonstop. But stops had to be made for rest and to water the camels every 100 miles. So that would be seven stops for water in a 30-day journey. And if Ur was the last stop, each of Abraham's 10 camels would be thirsty enough to consume 30 gallons of water each for a total of 300 gallons. You know that indoor oil tank that you have in your basement? That's 275 gallons. So just add 25 gallons more to it, and you got an idea of how much water that is. Listen to Rebecca's response to Eliezer, verse 19 and following. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they have finished drinking. What? Let me read that again. I'll draw water for your camels too, until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Genesis 24, verse 19 and 20. Rebecca's clay water jar held about 2.5 gallons of water. So that's 120 trips to and from the well to the water trough to satisfy 10 thirsty camels. I'm tired just thinking about it. Could I do that? 
120 trips. What did Eliezer do? Verse 21, it says, Without saying a word, the man, Eliezer, watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. Genesis twenty-four twenty-one. Notice how Eliezer is a detailed person. He's taking no chances on a wife for Isaac. The test was to consist of him receiving a drink from God's chosen maiden, and more importantly, the woman volunteering her services to water his camels, which was a monumental labor of love. Would Rebecca do this? I mean, would she hang in there for dozens of trips with her water jar from well to water trough well to water trough, back and forth, back and forth. Or is she going to get tired? Is she going to get frustrated with the task and just quit? It is only when Eliezer witnessed that the camels had finished drinking, verse 22, that he rewards her with jewelry and proceeds to discover who she is and if there is lodging available for him at her father's house. And learning who she really was, namely Abraham's niece, we read in verse 26 and following, Then the man bowed down and he worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. The girl ran and told her mother's household about all these things. Genesis 24, 26 and following. Boy, this is a story. And it's a biblical story, so it's dealing with God's intervention. What do we learn on this lesson of love and hospitality? Well, number one, marriage for believers must be with another believer of like faith. I mean, this is a lot of energy to, to find a wife. But Abraham was not willing to have Isaac settle for the women of Canaan. They were close at hand, they were available, any one of them would have provided Isaac with companionship, romance, intimacy. But, but, their idolatrous religion would have pulled at his loyalty to God and would have compromised his faith. This very thing, you'll remember, happened to Esau, Isaac's oldest son who decided to marry Hittite women. Genesis 27, verse 46. And it turns out that Esau was godless and immoral. That's why he did that. 
Genesis 12, or not Genesis, Hebrews 12, verse 16. So he married women who agreed with his own wicked lifestyle. I'm not talking about marriages where in the providence of God, one spouse comes to know Jesus as Savior and the other does not. And I would say not yet. In these cases, we strive to live for this, for the Lord in such mixed marriages, 1 Corinthians 7. But before you are married and while you're still considering who to marry, God makes it clear that Abraham was on the right track. The New Testament teaching of the Apostle concurs. He writes, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? For what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial is a name for Satan. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God, which is what we are, and idols. For we are the temple of the living God, and God has said, I will live with them and walk with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Second Corinthians 6, 14 and following. So as believers, even before we are married to another human being, husband or wife, we are already wed to Christ spiritually. If we know the Lord as our Savior. That's why the church is called the bride of Christ and intentionally becomes one with a spiritual problem if you're not married within Christ. What happens? Tension, heartache, pain, turmoil, hostility, anger, because all the spiritual battles you will have to face. So I say marry in the faith. If you're not married yet, marry in the faith. Secondly, don't take an oath or make promises without understanding all the terms and the conditions. I think Eliezer is to be applauded for that. You can see he's, (laughs) well, he goes with these what if questions. (laughs) What if? Uh, Okay, then what if? He wants to know precisely what he's to do as the steward. He was relentless in questioning Abraham about his commission to search for a bride for Isaac. As immediate as verse 2, Abraham wanted Eleazar to swear an oath to find an Isaac a bride in the old homestead, but not until verse 9 does Eleazar actually take the oath. So between verse 2 and verse 9, Eliezer posed these adverse possibilities which just might throw a monkey wrench into the whole bridal search. What if, what if, what if? What if the woman is unwilling to come? Thought being, should I then take Isaac there to do his own courting? So Abraham says, if the woman is unwilling, you're free of the oath. Okay, you can't make her. Sometimes providential circumstances arise 
which make it impossible to keep our promises. They do. But most of the time, we break our word because we didn't think through all the variables. Solomon words it this way. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Do not protest to the temple messenger, Oh, my vow was a mistake. Don't do that. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4 and following. Moses put it this way. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you won't be guilty. I'm still reading scripture. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21 and following. No one was twisting your arm, is what the colloquialism would say. No one made you take a vow. You did it of your own accord. So don't try to dismiss it, because you didn't know what you were doing. Thirdly, we learn that prayer, as the case with Eliezer, should always reflect the one we serve as stewards. Every prayer prayed by Eliezer in this account had Abraham or Isaac as the beneficiary. Every one of them. Verse 12, the first part. Then he prayed, O Lord God of my master Abraham, give me success today. Last part of the same verse. Show kindness to my master Abraham. Or verse 13, concerning the woman who would give Eliezer a drink, let her be the one you've chosen for your servant Isaac. And finally, when Eliezer is convinced that Rebekah is God's chosen bride for Isaac, verse 26, the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, now he's going to get personal. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. So Eliezer is consumed with the will of his master as he prays. There isn't a selfish, egotistical, envious bone in his body. His prayers are all about how he can accomplish Abraham's charge and do right by him and Isaac. Okay, what a lesson for us. Who is our master? And how do we pray? Jesus taught us all this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be 
your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6, verse 9 and 10. And Jesus' example as the servant of Jehovah, what's that? He went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Matthew 26, verse 42. If your prayers consisted of petitions to God to advance his kingdom, to accomplish his will, what wonders might God do for you when he answers? I think God stands eager to answer our prayers when we pray with his glory in view. By the way, we try to do that faithfully on Wednesday nights. It's not all about me, myself, and I on Wednesday night prayer meeting. We collectively think, how can we bless God for, praise God for all that he has done. And then as a final lesson, Christ Jesus, the servant of the Lord of hosts, courts his bride bearing gifts of sacrificial love. Verse 2 says, verse 10, excuse me, says, Then the servant, that would be Eliezer, took ten of his master's camels and left taking with him all kinds of good things from his master. These good things comprise the dowry for the woman who would agree to become the bride of Isaac. Verse 22 reveals three items, a gold nose ring, two gold bracelets, ten shekels, that would be today's money, about four ounces, worth $4,173, a becca weight nose ring, that's another $223, for a total of 4,396 dollars. And there is more to come. Verse 53, items of gold without saying how much, items of gold and silver and clothing and costly gifts. Now the idea of purchasing a bride is not a notation reflecting slavery, He's not purchasing a slave, no, but rather how the bride-to-be is valued by the suitor. Abraham, or more accurately, Isaac, verse 35, The Lord has blessed my master abundantly, and he has become wealthy. He has given him sheep and cattle, silver, gold, men servants, maidservant, camels, and donkeys. My master's wife, Sarah, has borne him a son in her old age, and he has given him everything he owns. Genesis 24, verse 35. That's Isaac's dowry for Rebekah. May I say, brethren, that Christ Jesus, in seeking out his bride, the church, also paid a dowry, and in so doing obtained us for his own but we were slaves of another. We were not free, like Rebecca, to make our own decisions. 
We were held captive by Satan's power, unable to free ourselves from our sinful nature and our due judgment. So what dowry did Jesus pay? Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Ephesians 5, 25 and following. How much gold, how much silver coinage did that require? Peter answers, you know, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. In other words, what you inherited. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defeat. He was chosen before the creation of the world. What was revealed in these last times for your sake? Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead, glorified him, and so your faith and your hope are in God. 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and following. We were not redeemed with such tangibles as silver and gold but with the lifeblood of Jesus Christ why the lifeblood because the scripture says the soul that sins is going to die and it says after death is the judgment so God steps in and takes our place if we trust him he submits his death in place of our death. And it says in effect. I redeemed you. From the judgment to come. If you will believe that. If you will accept me as the substitute. You will be saved. There's an old hymn in the worship and service hymnal. Now, we don't use worship and serve all much. They're stacked back there in that little room. But let me read a verse or two from, from there. Nor silver nor gold hath obtained my redemption. Nor riches of earth could have saved my poor soul. The blood of the cross is my only foundation. The death of my Savior now makes me whole. And then the chorus says, I am redeemed, but not with silver. I'm bought, but not with gold. Bought with a price, the blood of Jesus. Precious price of love untold. Verse 4, nor silver nor gold hath obtained my redemption. The way into heaven could not thus be bought. The plead of the cross is my only foundation. The death of my Savior 
redemption has wrought. I am redeemed, but not with silver. I'm bought, but not with gold. I'm bought with a price. It's the blood of Jesus. Precious price of love untold. I hope you can say that this morning. I hope you understand it's got to be life for life when you're talking about redemption. Oh, I'll pay you some money. That's what a lot of people think. Well, I'm going to make this big donation to the church when I die. I'm going to write it right in my will that the church gets $10,000 from my savings account. And I'm sure that St. Peter will receive me at his gate. No, he won't. St. Peter will slam the gate shut and lock it so you can't enter. I'm redeemed, says the hymn writer, but not with silver and gold. You don't know Jesus Christ if you haven't accepted him as his sacrifice for your sins. You're not saved. You're not going to be redeemed with silver and gold. You can do anything you want to do for the church. You know, years ago, when, uh, I mean, really years ago, like 10 or more years ago, we painted this building. outside and we had people in the neighborhood come with their rollers and paint and I asked one guy out here he's out here rolling away and painting the siding I said thank you so much for coming and helping with our building he said, well, you know, we got to pay our dues. I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, yeah, you know. The man upstairs has to get his cut. That's just the way they word it. Does this sound like somebody you might know? The man upstairs has got to get his cut. So I'm here painting, I'm earning my place in the sky. Well, I tried to witness and then he was very offended because I didn't appreciate his sacrifice of giving up his time to paint what he considered not his building, <laughs> but he was here doing a job. Brethren, we have to tell the truth to people whether they want to hear it or not. We don't buy our way to heaven. Jesus has paid the price. And it was far more price conscious than gold and silver. It was the precious blood of his life substituted on behalf of his people. If you don't know that, Jesus, you don't know salvation. 
but it can change like that today. Let's pray. Our Lord, help the uh, unsaved here to pray honestly to you and to confess that there's nothing they can do to earn their way to heaven. But praise God, you earned it for any who will trust you. You paid the price, and it wasn't with silver or gold. See, hymn writer said, Nor silver nor gold has obtained my redemption. The way into heaven could not thus be bought. The blood of the cross is my only foundation. The death of my Savior, redemption has wrought. I'm redeemed, but it's not with silver. I'm bought, but not with gold. I'm bought with a price, the blood of Jesus. Precious price of love untold. Lord, help us to have faith in your shed blood. God paid the price because he knew we couldn't make it. There's always something defective about what we give to God. It's either in the thing itself is defective or the way we think about that thing, that's defective. We treat God as though he were a man, could be bought, bribed, I pray that you will show the truth to our hearts this day. And I want to say thank you, Lord, for so great a price, the Lord Jesus, your shed blood, your cross work. And may you be pleased to save whom you will this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is number 79 in the hymnal. Number 79 in our hymnal. When you find it, will you stand with me? 79 in the hymnal. Thank you. 
Okay, there will be no service tonight. I'm not feeling very well, and I'm not going to stand over here and shake hands either. I've got a bad, bad headache, and I think that's one of the signs of COVID. Uh, so I have not had COVID, but I don't want to get it either, and I don't want you to get it. So let's pray, and we'll dismiss. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. That he shed his blood on behalf of us. We didn't deserve it. Our sins are so... When we think about it, from the time of our birth till the time that we die, we commit thousands and thousands of sins. So every one of those sins says, guilty, 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 guilty. For all of eternity, guilty, 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 guilty. And what does the scripture say about the guilty? It is appointed unto men once to die, and what? After that, the judgment. Well, I don't want to face the judgment as a guilty person. I want to face the judgment as a redeemed person, one for whom Christ paid for my guilt. I want that for everyone here in this room. I want that for our relatives and friends and neighbors. Lord, remove the guilt as we entrust ourselves to the shed blood of Jesus, who gladly, happily paid for our guilt and for our sin, if we will have him, if we will believe in him, if we will trust him, relying on him and not some a supposed goodness in ourselves. We're not good enough. Paul says there's none good, not one. It's a hard thing for us to swallow, but it's the truth. But there was one good man, the Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture says of him, he knew no sin, none. That's what makes him a perfect sacrifice, to pay for us sinners taking the guilt and the judgment on himself. Thank you for doing that for us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You okay to drive home? Huh? Are you okay to drive home? Oh, yeah. Can I check your head? You're not warm. No, it's just... Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if we're dressy or not. Um.